Hello and welcome back to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co. And today, we examine Plutarch's hometown hero you've never heard of, Pelopidas. Yeah, I'm going to say that one more time. P-E-L-O-P-I-D-A-S, Pelopidas. I have a lot of options as to how I arrange the lives in this podcast. And obscure names you've never heard of almost made that a whole season. Pelopidas is definitely in that category. But you should know him, and you will. After this episode, you'll be able to read his biography with greater depth and appreciation for this military genius who brought Thebes to its height of power. He trained his second-in-command and best friend, Epaminondas, to reach even greater heights than he had, and ultimately, he unwittingly showed his replacement the improved tactics the Thebans were fighting with. This man, his replacement, might be a little more famous than Pelopidas himself. It was Philip II, a third son that no one expected to take the throne of Macedon, who would eventually return from exile in Thebes with enough military and political savvy to unite the Greeks or tyrannize them, depending on your perspective. Thanks again for the support of your listening ears and your download. Be sure to tell others about the podcast you particularly enjoyed or learned a lot from. And send any and all of your questions about Plutarch, or really Latin and Greek for that matter, to tom at grammaticus.co. I hope these are encouraging you to continue your journey through Plutarch and helping you see and remember more along the way. Plutarch actually begins this life with a lot of really cool themes that seem much bigger than just the life of Pelopidas. It's another reason I looked at Aristides in the first season was because Aristides touches on so many of the high watermarks of Greek life. I think Pelopidas is a nice echo to Aristides, but in a different century. So the first few questions that he asks, and he'll use Pelopidas' life to explore, are themes we see a lot. The first is bravery and the ability to die well. The second is answering the question, what makes for a good general? Closely related to that question about dying well. The third is about his use of wealth. We've looked back through all of the lives, and particularly in the lives of the lawgivers and in the end of Sparta, like Lycurgus and Agesilaus, we see that Plutarch sees wealth as a corrupting influence. It's something he admired Sparta for rejecting and then was sad to see Sparta get corrupted by. Sad but not too surprised, actually. And that's our third thing, is the right use of wealth. So our fourth theme that he trots out early on in this life is the theme of friendship. And it's friendship with the guy we've already mentioned, Epaminondas, who is not just his best friend, but sadly also the one of two lives of Plutarch that do not survive down to the present day. So of all the biographies he wrote, Epaminondas is lost and Pelopidas has to act as both really. Though, man, if there was something I wish I could get back from the ancient world, it would certainly be that. So, let's take a look at these big themes, and then we'll walk through Pelopidas' actual life. Whenever you bring up a virtue or bravery, you really begin with Plutarch to talk about it philosophically. This goes back to Aristotle's ethics, and he wants to see, okay, it's the mean between the extremes. So, that was actually the first example Aristotle brings up in his ethics, and it's the most illustrative and obvious example of moral virtue. Moral virtue is a deficiency on one end, it's cowardice, not being brave enough, but then there's an excess on the other end, there's a too muchness that we would call recklessness, and right there in the middle is that sweet spot, bravery. And it's a clear and present example because the languages that we're working in, Greek or English, have words for all of those things. 
in the later moral virtues that Aristotle talks about, he's often using a word in two different ways. Maybe there's good ambition and bad ambition, good pride and bad pride. And we all know that one is an extreme and the other is a, a mean between the extremes and is a, a healthy or appropriate pride or ambition. But bravery doesn't have that confusion. It has bravery in the middle, cowardice is the deficiency, and recklessness is the excess. But it is still hard for philosophers to pick out in a specific example what happens. There's a difference, as Cato distinguishes early on in the quote Plutarch brings up, a difference between the love of virtue and the contempt of your own life. So when an adventurous soldier of Antigonus falls ill, the general who cares a lot about his soldier has his own physician look after him and he gets healthy again. But when his health returns, he ceases to be as brave as he was before. And when the king asks him about it, he says, you have freed me from those evils which had made me set a low value on my life. Oop, that's not virtue. Virtue is always based in reason. It's always something chosen. It might become chosen habitually, but it's chosen initially, rationally, with the reason at the steering wheel. And then Plutarch brings up the Sybarites, which were a notoriously opulent and extravagant colony in Italy, and he contrasts them with the Spartans. The Sybarites are like the ultimate partiers. They, in their cups, can never fathom the hunger and ambition that makes the Spartans brave death. In their softness and decadence, they can only see the Spartans as hating their own lives. And that's the the extreme of cowardice, the unwillingness to defend for or fight for anything. So on that note, understanding a little bit better what bravery is, then what makes a good general? Is a brave general the general who leads like a soldier? And uh, some say that a general should die of old age, or at least in old age, because it's proof that he was a general who didn't stick his neck out too much. This is a question of risk. Where the whole issue, Plutarch tells us, is greatly furthered by the generals exposing himself to danger, there he must employ hand and body unsparingly. But otherwise, no one demands that a general should risk his life in fighting like a common soldier. He tells a few different anecdotes, going back to Antigonus and Callicratidas, who was the Spartan that we met in the life of Lysander, Lysander alert. But the Callicratidas example he brings up on purpose because it's a great example of the Spartan leader went down, but it's not like he went down to any purpose because he took most of the Spartan navy with him. And that's the worst kind of leadership. So while it would be bad to just lose your leader and still win the battle, like the 10,000 do when they fight under Cyrus, they really win the battle, but Cyrus is dead. So their reason for being for attacking the Persian empire is now gone since they were mercenaries. Or you could have something where when your leader goes down, you all go down with him, and that is the roughest of both options. So who is Pelopidas's parallel? This is why he brings it up. Pelopidas and Marcellus have one really famous thing in common, that they both rashly fell in battle. That is to say, he brings them up in this life of, in this book of virtues and book of heroes, he's comparing these two men based on their vice. The vice they have in common, which is rashness, Though they were valiant soldiers and generals fighting in illustrious campaigns, they actually were not conscious of when and how and where to risk their own lives. They threw themselves into the thick of it too quickly and too often. So now that we've finally gotten to Pelopidas in particular, we can talk a little bit about his background. He's born into a wealthy family, but he keeps a measured approach to money that Aristotle notes is quite rare. So this is, again, Aristotle comes up, captain of virtue ethics, because he threads the needle in another moral virtue between greed and extravagance. But we'll notice that we're now bringing up this virtue probably because we figured out that his vice was not bravery and is much closer to the excess of recklessness. So it's good to see that he has a prudence somewhere in political life 
maybe the the dealings with his own polis and family. He's not greedy, a deficiency, wanting more and more and more. And he's not extravagant, an excess, not knowing how to spend your money well. He treats his money as an asset to help those who are worthy of aid. So he benefits all of his friends. And no friend does he benefit more with his own money than Epaminondas, who is born in almost the exact opposite financial conditions, poverty. But Pelopidas doesn't just help Epaminondas. It's not like he lifts him up and is like, let's go on a shopping spree. And they all get the nicest quality stuff. And then Epaminondas is like, wow, now you've really taught me what quality is Pelopidas. Thanks, right? It's actually reverse. Epaminondas and Pelopidas both practice philosophy well enough to realize that simplicity of life is what should be chosen whether or not it's forced on you by poverty or it's an option that you have because you're wealthy. And so Palavidas joins Epaminondas in his choices that seem to be enforced by poverty, but would actually be chosen by philosophy, even if Epaminondas had the money. So he chooses simple clothes, plain food, readiness in sustaining deprivations and living a soldierly life. I often think how often we, as a culture, just choose the best for ourselves. We expect a hot shower, a bed with a pillow. We don't sleep on the floor, maybe camping Right? And some of, some people in the minimalist movement probably seek out deprivations on purpose, but the vast majority of us avoid deprivations as if they are more, much more than inconveniences, which I find an interesting anecdote here because there's philosophers, not religious monks, not ascetics, not people with a religious motivation, just regular people who want to live well, and they think that simplicity is part of that choice. So Epaminondas makes his poverty easier to bear by using philosophy, that is, choosing to live alone from a young age. is what we see Epaminondas do. But Palapidas marries and has children. And here I want to do an aside on how important translations are because I saw and noticed in the couple different translations I read and then when I went to the Greek that one of the older translations will say he neglected his private interests for his public interest. But what I did not like about that was that his private interest implies to me that he's neglecting everything at home. And what it actually says in the Greek is that he thought that money was not worth spending too much time on. And that is a very different thing. So in the more recent translation that I read, I thought that made that much more clear. It's actually a book from Hackett Publishing, Plutarch's Lives That Made Greek History. I like these translations a lot. The only downside is that they are excerpts. But here it says in the section, Pelopidas made a brilliant marriage and had a number of children, but by neglecting money-making and devoting himself to the city, he was constantly depleting his fortune. That is a very, very different thing than, I will read to you from the Dryden translation of Pelopidas. The Dryden translation says, Pelopidas married a woman of good family and had children, yet still thinking little of his private interests and devoting all his time to the public, he ruined his estate. That makes it sound much less like it's only a money issue. Granted, he didn't have as much probably to give his sons when he died, but it does seem to imply a neglect of family that just isn't in the Greek. So I don't like it. It's funny too because money is etymologically in Greek a form of the verb, formed from the verb necessary. It is necessary. So they consider chremata, money, to be the necessary things, those things that you have to do. And have to earn in order to stay alive. That's an interesting thing we don't often think about that because there's a pun in this life where they remind him, his friends remind him, hey, money is necessary. Like you really need it. And Pelopidas turns to a blind man and a lame beggar and he says, yeah, it's necessary for him. That is to say, we should share it. 
right? This reminds me of Chemon as well, the wealthy Athenian who shared his wealth easily and whose character wasn't cheapened by his immense privileges. So that's always good to see. And the last thing that comes up, of course, which has already been brought up by this right use of wealth, is his friendship with Epaminondas. We might as well talk about both of these men through this life because they're both going to matter. Their friendship through all their political and military struggles. Epaminondas is going to rescue Pelopidas from prison. I'm getting ahead of myself. Plutarch asks us to compare this friendship to the rivalries that we have seen in this season He looks directly back at Themistocles and Aristides, Pericles and Cimon, Nicias and Alcibiades, and says, you know what? If the Athenians could just have had two of those men be friends, as Pelopidas and Epaminondas were, colleagues and co-commanders, how much better off would Athens have been? And because their success was rooted in virtue, both men were fueled by the desire to see their own country become more glorious and more powerful. So how did this, the friendship between these two men begin? In battle, of course, and in battle alongside the Spartans. Mantinea was a middle-sized polis that left the Peloponnesian League during the Peloponnesian War and paid the price for it by losing the first battle of Mantinea. When the Spartans had won the Peloponnesian War and are ruling rather poorly, rather tyrannically we could say, under men like Lysander and his cronies, the Spartans break up the polis of Mantinea into smaller village units to dilute their power And they put, as they often do, Spartan Harmos there, or a Spartan garrison to make sure Spartan interests are looked after. Well, in the 380s, as everyone is throwing off Corinth and Athens and all these other places, or throwing off the Spartan yoke and choosing not to follow Spartan hegemony, Mantinea expels all of the Spartans from their territory, and the Spartans respond by rolling in with an army, including their current ally, Thebes. The Spartans saw the entire Peloponnesus as their own backyard, and so now Mantinea was even easier to attack than Athens or Corinth, which, as we saw in the life of Agesilaus, definitely do take on punishing Corinth. But before we talk about that Mantinea, we should also cover a more famous Mantinea. The last and most famous battle fought at Mantinea happened in 362, and Agesilaus and Epaminondas are both there. But now they're on opposing sides, and by this time, Pelopidas had already died, and Epaminondas ends up dying in this battle from his wounds. So Plutarch sees it as as fittingly poetic, I think, from a literary biographical perspective, that their friendship... The friendship between Epaminondas and Pelopidas begins here because it will be the high watermark and the tragic early, too early death of Epaminondas at Mantinea. But anyway, rewinding back to 385, not jumping ahead 20 years, in the thick of battle, the Thebans are fighting, according to Plutarch, more valiantly than the Spartans themselves. And Pelopidas falls down under seven wounds. How's this guy not dead yet? Epaminondas sees him fall, assumes he's died on the spot, but very Homerically, he fights to defend the body so that he can bring it home for burial and prevent it from being looted for its armor and other wealth. While defending his friend, Epaminondas takes wounds in the chest and the arm, only to finally be rescued by one of the two Spartan kings, Agesipolis. So we have a friendship mounting under nine wounds and a Spartan king has to get involved before they can really fight this guy out. That is a good way to cement a friendship if you ask me. But when Thebes and Sparta are victorious as allies, can't help but wonder what will set them at odds for the next 20 years. The first element of it according to Plutarch, is suspicion. What makes Spartans suspicious? As we remember from Lysander setting up committees of 10 or even 30, the Spartan distrust of democracy makes them distrust Pelopidas, who prefers that political form to all others. And so it isn't just that they don't trust Thebes for generic reasons, it's that they don't trust Thebes 
for the very man's life that we are studying right now. In 382, just three years after the siege of Mantinea, a Spartan general named Phoebidas seizes the Cadmia, the fortified citadel in Thebes. From this strategic location, he's able to control the whole city with a small contingent of armed Spartans behind him. You may be wondering why the Thebans put up so little resistance, and you would be right to note that the element of surprise was on his side, but Phoebidas didn't just use surprise. He put timing and the culture on his side as well. Not only were the Thebans and Spartans at peace, just making the attack unlikely from a Theban perspective, or entirely off their radar, it was also late autumn, early winter, a time when most armies weren't actively campaigning. And finally, the Thebans were celebrating a festival to Demeter and Persephone celebrating the harvest. The festivals open only to adult women, and men are forbidden to see or hear the rites. Thus, Phoebidas finds the most important spot in Thebes unguarded by men and decked out for a religious festival. He uses this force that he brings up to expel all those who favor democracy, including Pelopidas. So where do the exiles go? Well, Athens, of course, who's always willing to support a democracy in distress, or even one in exile, as these now are. Plutarch notes, though, that Epaminondas is not exiled. His poverty and philosophical isolation made him seem like not a threat at all. The Spartans look pretty bad with this act of war during a time of peace, but they compound their stupidity with their reaction. Phoebidas, the leader of the plot, is recalled, tried, and fined. 100,000 drachmas. So the Spartans send a message of their disapproval by punishing the leader, but the garrison stays in Thebes and the control of the Cadmia while they renegotiate with the Thebans. And so essentially, Phoebidas was recalled and slapped on the wrist, but there's still Theban oligarchs in charge of Thebes who have no interest in restoring the democracy. Sparta has taken advantage of the natural divisions that exist in any political unity and are supporting the Theban oligarchs with armed Spartans. Plutarch comments that this inconsistency of punishing the leaders but approving the deeds just makes all of Greece wonder at Sparta. And this move also pushes another ally away, Athens. And now we see why the decades preceding Philip and Alexander are filled With these flip-flopping, revolving-door alliances, Sparta forbids Athens from harboring any Theban Democrats in exile, which Athens promptly ignores. Thebes had helped the Athenian exiles overthrow the 30 tyrants, and so Athens sees it as her turn to help the Thebans restore democracy in their own polis. And it was always Sparta on both counts that was keeping the democracy down. As the youngest of the exiles, Pelopidas, actually, strangely, stands up to lead and organize the restoration. Diomedes' moment the youngest in the Iliad, but still one of the best. He convinces a small body of men to be inspired by the Athenian restoration of their democracy and to take a bold risk to get their polis back. What the Athenians had done is they had been in exile essentially in their port of the Piraeus, and they used the port as a gathering place until they had enough force to take on the city of Athens. And then the Spartans saw the writing on the wall and and left, but there was some street fighting. So this is kind of the Theban plan, but they're gonna be a little bit more organized about it. They set up an underground communication network inside the polis of Thebes with those who still favor democracy. And this plays to the unseen advantage of Epaminondas because he's inside and his best friend Palabidas is outside. So there's a trust factor as long as those two men are involved, and Epaminondas can start gathering recruits for the revolt from the easiest place to find the strongest young men in the city. He still has access to the palaestra, the wrestling room, and the gymnasium. By 379, 
So a few years have gone by. The pieces are in place to retake the city. These are patient plans, patient men. The Theban army stays in Attic territory, but marches all the way to the edge of its territory with Thebes, which is called Boeotia. And at that point, they stop at the border and ask for 12 volunteers, with Pelopidas at their head, to disguise themselves as young men hunting in the countryside of Boeotia and make their way into the city without arousing suspicion. One of their inside men, Charon, who's ironically the ferryman, the name of the ferryman who leads people across into the underworld and death, just from a literary perspective, makes this a little ominous, is going to meet them at a house inside of Thebes, going to have to defy death to get there. They enter the city at different times of day and from different areas until all 48 men, 12 from the outside and 36 whom Epaminondas had recruited, have gathered at Charon's house. You can imagine the mood 48 men, they've got to keep the windows and the shutters closed, got to keep their voices down, and yet they know that they're about to do something irreversible. The man responsible for helping them get into the tyrants, we'll just call them tyrants now, is actually the secretary of one of the tyrants. Philidas is his name. He's informed the other conspirators that Archeos, one of the four major tyrants who are going to get a takedown right now, who's a target in this attack, will be at a drinking party, and therefore he'll be drinking pretty hard by this point. So while these 48 men are gathered waiting to hear from the secretary to get the signal, Charon himself is summoned by the tyrant. The house falls silent. No one knows what to make of this. Does Archeos know about the plan? Charon had already been arming himself and had to take off all his arms to look completely like a civilian again. The decision is really up to Charon, and he chooses to obey to avoid throwing greater suspicion on the conspiracy, which is so close to completion. Before leaving, Charon asks Pelopidas, of all men, to be the guardian of his own son if he doesn't return. At this point, some people are crying as they realize the huge risk that Charon is stepping out into. They, these other 47 men, may still be able to escape, but it's highly unlikely that if Archeus knows that Charon is going to walk in and walk out with his life. In spite of the offer to hide out in Athens for a while, he prays to the gods, hugs his friends, and encourages the remainder of the conspirators to stick to the plan. Once Charon arrives before Archeus, who informs him that he'd heard that some exiles had made their way back into the city, Charon asks who they are and who is working with them. The question sounds innocent enough, but also reveals how little the tyrant actually knows. Charon advises him to ignore such a vague rumor, but promises to look into it going forward because no story should be truly ignored. Charon returns to the house, telling only Pelopidas what really happened, so as not to shake the other's confidence that they may be under suspicion. Archeus receives one last chance at information because a messenger arrives from Athens with a much more detailed report of the conspiracy. But Archeus is now so deep into his drinking that he dismisses the messenger claiming serious business for tomorrow. He puts the letter under his pillow unopened. And since that time, the serious business for tomorrow, tas budaya isaurion, ukun, becomes a Greek proverb describing someone who puts something off to his own destruction. The conspirators decide the time's ripe. Pelopidas leads one group to attack two tyrants, Leontidas and Hypates. Charon leads the other against Archeus and Philip. If these four can be killed, the democracy can be restored. Charon's group goes out dressed as women invited to a banquet. When they arrive at Archeus's party, they're first greeted with applause. The drunkards think that the party is progressing to its next phase. This is when the flute girls come. But the men enter and keep their disguises on only as long as they need to mark each of their targets. And then they draw their swords and come down on the necks of the tyrants. 
Some of the drunken guests attempt to resist, but drunken resistance tends, as you know, to be rather feeble. A few are spared because they do not resist. Meanwhile, in, in another part of the polis, Pelopidas has the harder task of killing two sober tyrants. They arrive at the house of Leontidas, and the lights are off, and the house is locked up. They demand entry, loudly knocking for a long time. But at that point, Leontidas is aware of what is going on and arms himself with a dagger. Though he had lit many lights as the commotion increased, so now his assailants could see quite easily. After striking down the first man who entered his room, Pelopidas the second. After a fierce struggle in a narrow passage with a man literally dying beneath and between them, Pelopidas dispatches him, and they have to move on to the next tyrant, who had already fled to another house. The group does catch him on the run, cuts him down. And this conspiracy, planned for three years, manages to be a complete success in a single night. They immediately inform the Theban army in Attica of the news, and they call the entire polis to war now, breaking open the workshops of spear and sword makers and even taking dedicated spoils from the temples. While the Thebans run hither and thither, waking up to their freedom and their new responsibilities, the Spartan garrison, still 1,500 men strong, does not stir out of the Cadmia. After all, it's the most strategically defensible position in the polis, and they don't even really know what's happened. They can hear the shouting and clanging of spears, but there's no real way to gauge how many men they're up against and what the risk would be of coming out of a strong defensible position. At dawn, the exiles and the Theban army return together. The Thebans assemble, and Pelopidas and the other men are hailed already as liberators. Now they just have to recapture the Cadmia. But even before that, they need to elect a government. Pelopidas is voted as Beotarch, which is what you probably think it is, leader, Arch, Archon, and Beotia. It's the equivalent of Strategos, but it might have more responsibilities even than Strategos. The Strategos, remember, is the Athenian elected position that we now call general, where we get words like strategy and strategize. But the Beotarch is the newly minted term for a democratically elected governor of Beotia, that whole area around Thebes. And now there's three of them. Charon, whom we've already met, a guy named Milan, who was a part of the conspiracy, and Pelopidas. Eventually, there will be seven of them, four from Thebes and three from outlying regions. But for this first day, it looks like they just need enough leadership to move them into the next phase of the plan. Their first phase of that plan is to prevent Spartan reinforcements from reaching the Cadmia and to begin negotiation or fighting as soon as possible whichever they need to do. The Spartans see how much has changed in a single night, and they surrender, conditionally, if they're allowed to leave the Cadmia. Halfway back to Sparta, the Spartan garrison runs into Cleombrotus, the Spartan king, leading their relief force. The three Harmos, who had been in charge of the Theban occupation, are all put on trial for dereliction of duty. Two are executed, and the last is heavily fined and exiled. Strangely, they did not treat the leader of the treaty breaker the same way. This great act echoed the Athenian liberation 20 years earlier under a man named Thrasybulus. Plutarch struggles to find examples where so few men could overcome so many enemies with such courage and wisdom that gave decades of blessing to their polis and people. This was also the beginning of the Spartan humiliation, really. The payback for the Spartan pride that had ruled over fellow Greeks for the past generation. That night, Pelopidas and 47 other men gathered in a private home, began the crippling not only of the Spartan Empire, but the very myth of Spartan invincibility. Another Spartan a few years later sees an opportunity to cripple Athenian involvement in these things. If only he could just take the port of Athens, the Piraeus, by storm at night. He fails quite badly, as we heard in the life of Agesilaus, making himself and Sparta look foolish and further cementing the strong alliance between Athens and Thebes. His story is told in more detail in the life of Agesilaus, but now Sparta faces two, two large poleis who have personal experience living under Spartan control. Every small skirmish with Sparta on land from here on out is training 
for the Thebans. From 379 until his death, Pelopidas would serve as either as Boeotarch or leader of the Sacred Band, thus leading the Thebans from victory to victory. Plutarch quickly lists a few of the important early battles, noting that at Thespiae not only do the Spartans lose, but Phoebidas, the Spartan who had originally taken the Cadmia and only been fined, is killed. Poetic justice. The Thebans aren't silly enough to take the Spartans on in conventional hoplite warfare in these early skirmishes. They test the strength of the force of the Spartans and then strategically retreat and harass the Spartans until they quit the field. But by 375, we see that the Spartans really have been training the Thebans to get better and better. And it all happens at Tijira. The tide turns at Tijira, we could say. Because this was the first place that the Thebans proved to themselves and the rest of the Greek world that they could beat the Spartans in a pitched land battle. A neighbor of Thebes, the polis of Orchomenus, had allied itself with the Spartans and thus had a Spartan garrison. When Pelopidas heard that the garrison had sallied forth and left Orchomenus unguarded, he jumped on the opportunity to close on Orchomenus and bring them back into the Boeotian alliance by force, obviously. The Spartan army that left had been promptly replaced with another one, though, and so Pelopidas finds out very quickly that he cannot achieve his objective. Pelopidas returns to Thebes with his army through a narrow path between the mountains on one side and the marshes on the other. Orchomenus is actually on a lake called Lake Orchomenus, and even the parts of the lake that aren't strictly speaking lake are marshy and swampy. So Pelopidas enters one side of this narrow valley at the same time as the returning Spartan garrison comes in at the other. When a messenger tells him that they've, quote, fallen into the enemy hands, he asks, amused, haven't they fallen into ours? But the reason his messenger was worried was one of numbers. Pelopidas is outnumbered. He's got 300 infantry and 200 cavalry against more than a thousand Spartans. So that's more than two to one. He centers the clash on the Spartan generals and they fall early in the battle, giving him a great strategic advantage. Get it? Strategic? I thought that was good. Yeah. Anyway, you don't have to thank me for that terrible dad pun. Then they split the Spartans in half and harry one half as it retreats, letting both halves go pretty quickly so they don't press their advantage all the way into disadvantage if the garrison from Orchomenus decides to come out and aid the returning Spartans. So they don't push hard, but they do put the Spartans to flight. This was the first time that the Spartans had ever been defeated by an inferior force. Plutarch's lesson here is that there's nothing magical about Sparta, but victory lies in character. Those who shun disgrace more than danger are the most formidable to their foes. This is like an answer to the question he brought up at the beginning about bravery. You have to be willing to die in order to save your own life. Or as Chesterton so eloquently puts it, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. De cool. So Plutarch now turns to the fighting force, which becomes the so legendary under the leadership of Pelopidas and Epaminondas, the Sacred Band. Originally composed of 300 of the best-picked men, they encamped near the Cadmia and were originally just called the City Band. Plutarch admits that some say it was composed only of pairs of lovers, and then critiques Nestor's advice in Book 2, where he recommends that tribe fight with tribe and clan with clan, because those bonds break more easily than those between lovers, which are strongest. So, Plutarch himself seems conflicted in this section. I'll just let you read it, but... Plutarch and the philosophers he quotes do admit that the bond between those who truly love each other is stronger, citing a story about Heracles and some Aristotle and Plato. 
But Plato tells us that a lover is a friend inspired by God, and so Plutarch concludes from this that sacred perhaps is a fitting description of this band. Furthermore, they remain undefeated from their founding. Disputed, this is unclear, but it's likely that they were founded sometime in Pelopidas' life. Until the Battle of Chironea, in which all the Greeks lose their freedom to the Macedonian Philip. Gorgidas is their founder, originally spreading this elite force throughout the phalanx. And Plutarch here gives Pelopidas the credit of seeing them excel at Tegira and then making them their own unit going forward. So Plutarch's conclusion is that brave men are most ardent and serviceable in a common cause when they inspire one another with a zeal for high achievement. Ambition at work in forging excellence or at least military excellence. So at this point, Sparta makes peace with everyone except Thebes. And we remember that it was kind of a personal grudge that Agesilaus held that prevented him from seeing that he could just settle a peace with all of Greece. He decided to single out Thebes and make peace with everyone else but them. It looks like an an obsession. Pelopidas' wife is a little worried, begging him not to die. This echoes a lot of Andromache's plea in to Hector in book six of the Iliad, but his response in some ways is different than Hector's because Hector claims he isn't as worried about his other family members being cut down or taken away into slavery, but he's most worried about his wife being cut down and taken into slavery, so he won't let it happen unless he's dead first, the original over my dead body sort of response. But Pelopidas tells his wife that a general should be told not to preserve his own life, but to preserve as many of the lives as he can of his own men. So that's not something we see Hector speaking to, but it's also right smack in the middle of this life that Pelopidas turns to his wife, just going to make us think of Hector, and claims that he as a general shouldn't be worried about losing his life. So taking that with the beginning of this life, we're beginning to see this thread throughout that Pelopidas is at least thinking consistently in the way Plutarch's presenting him to the general's life not being worth as much as some might argue. But in 371, Thebes is isolated from any of her allies now. They've managed to pick off Athens and settle a peace with her as well as Corinth. The Spartans invade Boeotia with a force of 10,000 hoplites, meeting the Thebans on the plains of Leuctra. Here, Plutarch starts with the omens for battle. Reminds us a lot of the Spartans refusing to do battle at the uh, Battle of Plataea until the omens were right. But the omens here are from the days and nights preceding. Pelopidas sees in a dream two women who had suffered under Spartan hands in their own lifetimes, asking Pelopidas to sacrifice a woman with red hair for victory. Several historical precedents are offered, though none of them seem to fit the bill perfectly. The two most pertinent to those listening to this podcast are the parallel lives when Themistocles unwillingly sacrificed the Persian youths, which was followed up by victory at Salamis, and Agesilaus's refusal in the last life, to sacrifice a girl at Aulis, as Agamemnon had, and he sacrificed a deer instead, and it got broken up by the Thebans. There's that personal grudge again, which he thinks led to his failure in Asia, or maybe all people thought at the time. Others argued that truly divine beings could not delight in slaughter and human blood. And by others, we mean that's Agesilaus' exact argument at the time. So as they contemplate the unthinkable, a horse with a red coat scares and runs through the camp. A seer identifies the horse as the appropriate victim, and Pelopidas is saved from the crime of human sacrifice. Isn't it weird how often this comes up in Greek history and mythology? Then the battle begins. Epaminondas tries two new tactics here on the Spartans. First, he uses a greater depth in the phalanx on the left-hand side, stacking it 50 men deep, when a phalanx would normally be about 8 to 12 men deep. 
While he keeps his cavalry close to the deeply stacked wing, he sets up the rest of his line in blocks receding further away from the Spartan straight line. By the time you've reached the far right of Epaminondas' line, these hoplites are hundreds of yards further back than the deep wing. This means the strongest force is concentrated on the Spartans' strongest troops, and they feel the onslaught of the first attack. Though Plutarch says their discipline allows them to, quote, accept any man as his neighbor and focus on the threat in front of them. Nice Spartan tactic. But in reforming quickly after the first onslaught, the Spartans see that the Theban line has an opening. And if Pelopidas didn't also see that hole and bring his sacred band charging right into it, the Spartans would have been able to surround Epaminondas' strong flank and likely end the battle right there. Pelopidas does manage to turn the Spartans and cut down 1,000 Spartan hoplites, including King Cleombrotus. The Spartan allies flee when they see that the Spartans themselves are in disarray and the Thebans have won the day. More clearly than even at Tegira, Sparta has ceased to be an indomitable polis in the Greek world. Now it's time for the Thebans to get some allies back, and with E and P, if you will, Epaminondas and Pelopidas, elected as Boeotarchs the following year, they invade the Peloponnesus. Their ranks swell to just unheard of numbers, showing us how many people don't like Sparta. And supposedly they end up in Laconia, the very region around Sparta, with 70,000 men. The Spartans had made a lot of enemies in the last generation, but the grudges went further back than the aftermath of just the Peloponnesian War. Some of these grudges go back to the original conquest of Messenia, their neighbor, 500 years ago, or the creation of the Helots under Lycurgus. Almost any polis you could pick in the Peloponnesus could find a reason to hate Sparta. The Athenians, not in the Peloponnesus, but elsewhere, don't side with the Thebans, though. In part, because they don't live in the Peloponnesus, and they are direct neighbors with Boeotia, giving them pause when they notice that the newest, strongest power in Greece is also their next-door neighbor to the north. Nonetheless, on this first united Theban foray into the Peloponnesus, the Thebans wrest Messenia from Spartan control and return it to the Messenians, even founding a new polis named for it as its capital, Messini. They had been under Spartan control since the 8th century. That's 400 years. While this was not their first revolt, it was absolutely their most successful. All of this action in the Peloponnesus keeps Epaminondas and Pelopidas busy throughout the year 360. And even after their terms had expired, they still weren't back in Thebes handing the reins over to the next Boeotarchs, which, let's be real, could have been them, but wasn't. The people don't like this. Democracy has its downsides. Both men are put on trial and acquitted, but Plutarch points out a distinction between their reactions that really makes me wish we had the life of Epaminondas right now. Pelopidas, less influenced by philosophy and more by the military aspects of virtue, seeks vengeance against those political opportunists who used his slight overstep, his military gaffe of not handing power over fast enough, as a pretext for destroying his career. Whereas Epaminondas handles it with the, quote, equanimity of a philosopher. If the life of Epaminondas had survived, we'd have the only pair of lives from Aristides to Agesilaus that shows us a pair of personalities whose personalities were starkly different, but who managed to form a political, military, and personal friendship rather than rivalry. I would just love to see that. Meanwhile, since Thebes is so powerful, they found smaller poles asking them for help with local bullies. This is Pelopidas' second greatest moment. So we could say his first greatest moment came in the rise of the sacred band as the answer to the Spartan war machine. And this second phase of his career is Pelopidas against a tyrant. Quite a tyrant too. So after recovering from the trial in 369 BC, Pelopidas brings an army north to aid some small Thessalian poles, right? So you have Attica in its own spot, 
Then north of Attica is Boeotia, and north of Boeotia is Thessaly, famous for its horses, open plains, and now famous for its encroaching tyrant, Alexander of Pherae, who was a tyrant of one polis in the Thessalian region, is now trying to take over more and more polis. He had just inherited the throne from his uncle and was attempting to crush rather than cajole Larissa, in particular, is the polis that asks for help, and other small polis within his orbit. Then even Macedonia, even further north than Thessaly, complains of Alexander's behavior, and so Pelopidas acts as an arbiter for the peace between these two rather unstable kingdoms. As is normal in ancient treaties, hostages are exchanged to prove that both sides have skin in the game for upholding this contract of peace. Thebes takes over, looking after the Macedonian hostages, you know, doing a favor, since they helped negotiate the peace, and one of the 30 men now returning to Thebes is the brother of the current king of Macedon, Philip. Though in 10 short years, he will inherit the throne of Macedon and begin a campaign in which, well, in Plutarch's words, a campaign which will, quote, enslave the Greeks. So we know where Plutarch stands on Philip of Macedon. While in Thebes, though, he lived in the house of a general and friend of Epaminondas named Pamenes. What surprises Plutarch is that he could have learned so much of the tactics, politics, and diplomacy from Epaminondas, and so little of philosophy, or to put it in Plutarch's exact words, restraint, justice, magnanimity, and gentleness. Ooh, burn. Notice that Philip does not have a life in Plutarch's parallel lives, though his son, Alexander, does. The following year, Alexander, who, by the way, is this is Alexander of Pharae. This guy has no relation to Philip of Macedon, except that He's fighting with the kingdom that Philip doesn't even yet control. So this is Alexander of Pharae. Maybe we'll just call him Alex Xander. I don't know. We need some way of distinguishing him from the Alexander the Great of the next generation. But Alexander of Pharae acts up again and again, and Pelopidas comes up again the next year. This time without an army because he's only acting in the capacity of ambassador. But he ends up leading the Thessalians in battle against Alexander. Basically, they're all armed and ready, and they're like, you know how to lead men. Go, let's take this guy down. Macedon, meanwhile, has fallen into chaos because some opportunist has murdered the king. So that's pretty typical in Macedon. We're not expecting things to get better. We're sort of expecting news like that to continuously come out of Macedon. But while arranging things up in Macedon and setting up the murderer as a regent, Pelopidas is lured into a trap by Alexander and captured. Pelopidas advises Alexander to kill him because if Alexander frees him, Pelopidas will definitely get his revenge. We're going to see a similar story when Julius Caesar is captured by pirates. He warns them not to let him go, and they laugh. They should not have laughed. Pelopidas' wife strikes up a friendship with Pelopidas and pities him and admires how nobly he's bearing the harsh treatment. Pelopidas honestly pities her because she's the wife of a tyrant. So their friendship grows, but the original army sent up to negotiate with Alexander accomplishes nothing. And so Epaminondas is sent at the head of another Theban coalition as Pelopidas' prison sentence drags on. Epaminondas has to be careful, though, as this tyrant is unpredictable. Plutarch uses this as an opportunity to list for us all the injustices of Alexander. He has, as a tyrant, buried men alive, dressed people in animal skins, and sicked dogs on them, gathered allies for a meeting, and then slaughtered everyone who showed up. He killed his uncle to steal the throne, and then dedicated the spear he used as a thank offering to the gods. This man is weird, and this is, as I said, the beginning of that tyrannical theme. While watching a tragedy by Euripides called The Trojan Women, still exists, still a beautiful tragedy, 
which looks at the effects of war on the losers, and specifically the, the wives, because the men are dead, he finds that he has to leave the theater abruptly because he's moved to pity and tears by the fate of Andromache and Hecuba, but he definitely can't let his subjects see his tears because he has never once pitied them in any of the disgusting actions that I listed above. Epaminondas negotiates a 30-day truce and the return of captives. I don't know how, but that is an impressive point in Epaminondas' favor as an ambassador who deals with a crazy man with restraint. I shouldn't even call him crazy. With a really evil man who's extremely unpredictable with restraint. At this point in our story, though, it seems like Plutarch starts developing a bad joke. An Athenian, a Spartan, and a Theban walk into a bar. No, okay, not quite. But instead of a bar, the Thebans discover that the Athenians and the Spartans are so afraid of this meteoric growth of Theban power that they send an embassy to Persia. And when the Thebans find out, they send Pelopidas. So I guess the Theban walks into the bar last after he heard that the Athenians and the Spartans had gone into the bar. About four years after beating the Spartans at Leuctra, Pelopidas overshadows everyone else in the embassy. Because he'd humbled those same Spartans who just a couple decades ago were harassing and even conquering Persian territory, Pelopidas definitely receives the most attention and honor from the current Persian king, who is Artaxerxes. At this point, we may start laughing, though, at the contrast between these three polis and the way in which their conflict benefits, again, only Persia, who has always won from the Greeks fighting with each other. It's always been Persia. Pelopidas is offered but politely rejects all the physical gifts, gold, I'm sure, and horses and a bunch of other stuff that's really hard to move thousands of miles away to get it back to your homeland. He returns to Thebes only with Persian guest friendship and a guarantee of freedom for Greece. Strangely still, Persia still sees herself as capable of offering this without insulting the Greeks, which is telling as to the current position of the Greeks right now. They can say, okay, I guess Persia has control over guaranteeing our freedom. Seems insulting to me. They ratify the founding of Messini, so that's it's nice to get another third party saying that the, their political actions were valid. And overall, the Thebans come off looking, according to Plutarch, quote, more trustworthy than the Athenians and more straightforward than the Spartans. The Athenian ambassador is actually put to death by the Athenians on his return because he accepted so many gifts that he basically came back with like quadrupled net worth, which they thought was disgusting. Anyway, so a few years later in 364, we're called, Pelopidas is called north again. Notice that Epaminondas will become like the southern general dealing with the Spartan stuff, and Pelopidas becomes the northern guy who goes north and deals with the northern stuff, which tends to be the Thessalians and the tyrannical acts of Alexander of Pharae. Plutarch tells us that an eclipse causes so much fear and consternation that Pelopidas refuses to force any number of his soldiers to march with him. Because of this generosity, though, his force shrinks from 7,000 to 300. Huh, that was rough. At this point, though, Pelopidas probably still would have gone by himself simply out of personal hatred for Alexander of Pharae. I'm going to just say it. This is another Diomedes moment because when Agamemnon wants to leave for the third time in the Iliad, Diomedes is basically like, go. Sthenelus and I, that's Diomedes' charioteer, will take down Troy by ourselves if we have to. All right word. I can respect that. But Pelopidas, if nothing else, has a personal hatred for Alexander of Pharae, who this far in the life has come off looking like nothing but power-hungry and utterly unscrupulous. In the battle that ensues at Kinocephali, means dog's head in Greek, that's fun, Pelopidas first gains the advantage with his cavalry, but Alexander boldly takes the high ground and is successfully pushing back the Thessalian infantry. Pelopidas notices this from his horse and calls his cavalry back, 
to focus on, quote, those that are still standing their ground, and then dismounts and becomes goes from being a cavalry officer to joining the infantry. As he fights among the infantry, he makes his way to the front and leads several assaults that finally push Alexander's army into a retreat, and not into utter disorder and rout. But it is at this point that Pelopidas sees Alexander and jumps out in front of his men to challenge him to combat. Unfortunately, Alexander, who is another name for Paris, by the way, this is a very Menelaus moment, Alexander melts back into his troops. You're thinking, this is just like book three when Paris, whose other name is Alexander in the Iliad, struts in front of the Greeks, and then when Menelaus, the man who wants to kill him because Paris stole his wife, comes out, Paris steps back and melts back into the crowd as if he had almost stepped on a snake, the text tells us. So Alexander melts back into his troops, just like Paris did, and Pelopidas is one man imposing this entire mercenary unit now. He's cut himself off from his own troops as well. So attacking him with spears from afar and swords close at hand, he cuts down a few of them, but he ultimately falls under the spear wounds, and the Thessalian cavalry and Pelopidas' own cavalry end the battle by defending Pelopidas' corpse and cutting down Alexander's army for the rest of the day. Then, the Thebans and the Thessalians have two different ways of grieving. The Thebans are sad because they lost a leader, a general, a father, and a teacher. But the Thessalians claim that they have it worse, since they have lost all of those things, as well as their liberty. They also felt ashamed at asking the Thebans for another leader when they could not return the first one. But Plutarch now wants to turn to Pelopidas' funeral, and contrasts it even with that of Alexander the Great's best friend, Hephaestion, who also died in a strange land without his wife, children, or relatives present. With no one begging or forcing it, this man of common rank was attended, buried, and crowned by so many cities, striving to exceed one another in the demonstration of their love. This seems to be the sum and completion of a happy fortune. For the death of happy men is not, as Aesop observes, most grievous, but most blessed, since it secures their felicity and puts them out of fortune's power. This really echoes Solon's description of the happy man, so much like Tellus the Athenian, who had fought well defending his country, seen his children grow up, and then died defending his country. But Tellus the Athenian was also buried in Athens by Athenians. Plutarch is sad that that didn't happen, and sad that Pelopidas didn't last longer. But he leaves for the reader questions as... What if Pelopidas had lived to see the Battle of Mantinea? Would Epaminondas have died? What if the two of them were still working together against Spartan power all the way in the Peloponnesus? Only once did they ever have the chance to combine forces there. Would Thebes have been able to lead the Greek world for more than the decade that they were in power, after which was abruptly ended by Pelopidas and Epaminondas' too early death? Would they have been strong enough to counter Philip II of Macedon? The world will never know. But Plutarch doesn't put down his pen when Pelopidas dies. Rather, he wants to follow Alexander to his grave, and how is that for closure? We're not just going to end this when Pelopidas dies. We're going to end when his arch enemy dies. Again, how Iliad-like is this? It's about the rage of Achilles, but we end it not with the end of the rage of Achilles, or technically with the end of the rage of Achilles, but we go all the way to the burial and funeral of Hector, breaker of horses, who was actually a a good man, but unlike Alexander of Pharae, but let's kill this tyrant, huh? Because Pelopidas wasn't able to do it, so we got to find a way. How did this guy die? Hopefully in some sort of poetic justice-y sort of way, right? 
The Thebans send a larger army in response to Pelopidas' death, which I'm sure the Thessalians appreciate because they weren't going to ask for it, remember? And they take most of the cities away from Alexander, restoring their freedom to them. But it grows even worse for Alexander, a fair eye, because his wife now conspires to kill him along with her own three brothers. She manages to sneak the three brothers into the bedroom where they can kill Alexander while he's sleeping. But they, the brothers, grow fearful when the moment actually comes, and their sister has to threaten them before they complete the deed. She basically threatens them with discovery and says that Alexander will have them killed. So Plutarch ends this life with the grim observation, starkly contrasted with Pelopidas' own funeral a few paragraphs before, that because he was the first tyrant killed by the contrivance of his own wife, and his corpse was abused, thrown out, and trodden underfoot, he seems to have suffered what his villainies deserved. Ouch. Now we have some time and space for reflection. The greatest reflections from this life, I think, are concerning friendship. Pelopidas and Epaminondas work together at the top of their political games to bring Thebes to greater heights. Their differences complemented one another far more often than they worked against each other. We might say that Pelopidas was the jock and Epaminondas was the intellectual, but those stereotypes don't help much. Rather, Pelopidas' urgency sometimes seized opportunities and sometimes prevented reflection. Epaminondas was there to encourage reflection, but perhaps might not have hit the timing just right if Pelopidas hadn't been pushing. These two guys also seem to work better together than separately. It's easy to wonder if Pelopidas would have charged after Alexander if, if Epaminondas had been right there in that battle because it's highly unlikely that Epaminondas wouldn't have just joined him, and the two of them would have been fighting together, as they did at the start of their friendship. Think of your closest friends. Are they carbon copies of you? Or are many of them and their strengths balancing your weaknesses? Though their names aren't easy on the English-speaking mouth, Epaminondas and Pelopidas do deserve a place in our minds with the other famous friendships from the ancient world. David and Jonathan, Achilles and Patroclus, Damon and Pythias. His life was one consistently fighting tyranny, whether at home, the tyrants he killed to free Thebes, or abroad, Alexander of Pharae. How committed are we to our ideals? Would we be willing to fight for the freedom of our families and our country, something we're often supposed to nod our heads at, but wonder sometimes, as things get difficult, what are we willing to resist? Is there anything for which we'd risk our lifestyles and our livelihoods? It's clear that Pelopidas lost so much more than Epaminondas in the Spartan Revolution that rocked Thebes. Pelopidas had more to lose. He was wealthier. When the Spartans took over Thebes, he lost it all and probably had to flee with his family. I wonder how well I would handle living in exile. And finally, his rashness is one reason Plutarch chose him and paired him with Marcellus, the talented Roman general who dies pursuing Hannibal. We'll get to him in two more seasons and then compare the two men, but this is the last episode of season three. Not so much for chronological reasons as for thematic ones. I see that Pelopidas is a capable leader for Thebes at a time when Greece is in chaos, or is further and further descending into chaos. Many of the themes that arise in this life act as a good bridge into the Macedonian season, but I won't be starting with Macedonians in season four. As a matter of fact, I'll start with a Corinthian and a Sicilian who are almost exact contemporaries of Pelopidas. Why? Well, historically, Pelopidas set in motion the next 50 years, which he could likely have never predicted. The chaos of the Macedonian monarchy is stabilized under Philip II, who also reforms the military under Theban influence. Add in his military and diplomatic genius, a son whose talent at least matches his father, and you have the rise of Macedon, which we'll begin exploring in our next season. With it comes the questions Pelopidas has left us with. What is a tyrant? How do we fight one? Does one tyranny always replace another? These are great questions to keep us going as we explore them not only for the Macedonians, but for the Romans themselves who conquer the Greeks. What is Plutarch showing us by comparing Greeks and Romans? 
It's still a little too early to answer this question, but we're gaining traction with each and every life. The first two lives of season four will give us a great perspective on tyranny. Dion and Timoleon. They both fight the same tyrant. But season four is going to take me a few months to prepare, and so it will probably start dropping in the summer. As always, though, thank you for the download, for listening, and for reading along as we explore ancient biography. I hope you continue to live virtuously in whatever circumstances you find yourself, and that life gives you many more opportunities to open Plutarch's lives and let his lives influence yours.